G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision Christian Radio. I think secret sexuality is rampant in the church, not just here in Australia, but the church worldwide. If a if a pastor and a congregation does not um, create an atmosphere within itself where it's okay to talk about your sin, then people are going to keep secrets. And that's what I found myself doing. Well, this is very important because sometimes if you are open about your secret sins, uh, secret sexuality, then you might expect condemnation to come from the church. Uh, And this is one of the reasons why you would want to keep things secret. Oh, I agree. I agree. It is for fear of of being condemned, fear of being judged, fear of of being ostracized. But I don't believe that's a biblical um, position for the church. Um, the church, I believe, is meant to be a spiritual hospital. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. If I want to get forgiven, I go to God. But if I want healing for the things that I'm going through and the sins that I'm having to face in my life, then I need to be able to confess that to a brother. I need to be able to open up my life and confess that to a brother and say, this is what I'm struggling with, and this is where I need your prayer, and this is where I need help. Our churches need to be that to one another. Of course, there are inconsistencies, aren't there, in the way that our lives evolve. And uh, over many years, uh, times when you've dealt with and struggled with issues of secret sexuality, and then times when you've had things perhaps worked out and you feel like the problem's solved, and then there's times of relapse. So really, there's a, there's an awful lot of complication that can happen when you share your secret sins or when you're on this journey and you're on a journey towards having an orderly life. Well, and that's true of any Christian for any sin that they're dealing with, whether it's secret or not. We are not perfect because of the fall, because of, of our, our being born into sin. Uh, we are not naturally good, as, as many people think is the case. We are born into sin, and because of that sin, our tendency is toward evil. We must learn to uh, practice godliness. We must learn to put on righteousness, uh, and we must learn to choose in every situation, no matter what the situation is, whether we're going to choose God's way or whether we're going to go off our own way. And we always have a choice. Daniel, take us back to some of your story. I mentioned that at age 17, you came to faith in Christ. Yes. And uh, obviously had been struggling with sexuality issues uh, from your teenage years. Uh, Take us back into those early days and the way things developed over this 30 years. My same-sex attractions developed long before I became a born-again Christian. Um, I first noticed same-sex attractions um, when I was probably around 10 or 11 years old, um, I had an early exposure to pornography, which did not help. And although the feelings were not actually sexualized at that time, 
there was a keen interest in males um, where there wasn't a keen interest yet with females. My first sexual experiences were with girls, and and they weren't really sexual experiences. Um, They were exploring nudity, you know, curiosity, but they were with girls. Um, And then uh, it wasn't until I was 13 uh, when I was molested by a stranger um, that and and beginning puberty that those feelings um, of uh, wanting to be like other boys um, because I I saw myself different than them, uh, it wasn't until puberty and everything becomes sexualized that I began the attractions to boys and males. Is it the case that there is a natural curiosity and the developing sexuality that we would have as ordinary, normal human beings? As you say, the fascination with nudity, uh, yes. clearly that, you know, for every young boy, uh, that becomes a level of expression of uh, of enjoyment uh, that actually is probably a, nat- a natural part of a, a developing sexuality. But when you get to a point where you've got this natural curiosity uh, that then moves to the unnatural uh, obsession, yes. uh, this is the issue I think we're talking about today. And, uh, and you're saying that you had a... Uh, an abusive encounter that did that intensify your uh, your yearnings? How did that work? It, it did, but it wasn't the only uh, factor, Neil. Um, for me, there were several other factors that that were involved in contributing to this direction towards same sex attraction. Um, I, I did not have a good relationship with my dad. I didn't bond well with other boys. Um, I was the uh, artistic, creative. Um, uh, son, and you know the other ninety-five percent of boys out there are the rough and tumble. Um, I'm I'm not the rough and tumble boy. I never was, and so even though I tried to fit in to that world because that's who everyone else was, uh, I failed miserably at that. Um, I excelled at singing and acting and dancing. Um, those are the things I was good at, and where I derived the most pleasure from, and also the most approval from. Um, but there was still a longing to be like the other boys. So that that longing, that envy to be like them, also becomes sexualized when puberty hits and it turns to attraction. Um, hearing, hearing words like sissy and uh, queer, um, mama's boy, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, uh, the word gay was not uh, a word then. It, at least it didn't mean what it means now. It meant happy then. Yes, yeah. it meant happy. So so there was some peer labeling. And when a child begins to hear that often enough, he begins to think that maybe there's something to that. Um, and, and I didn't have positive reinforcements coming into my life um, to be able to combat those negative messages I was receiving. And that became my reality. That was my perception of what my world was. And a child's perception is a child's reality. Take us to age 17 when you had an encounter with Christ. You came to faith in Christ. Uh, Your biography says you became a born-again Christian at age 17. And that wasn't the cure for (laughs) these sorts of 
ways, these feelings, uh, these sexuality uh, uh, direction that you were in, uh, take us to what it meant to come to faith in Christ and then still to battle with sexuality. Neil, I was born um, into a Roman Catholic family, and I had a basic understanding of Christianity because of that. And I and I knew that God could do anything. Um, I was not comfortable um, being a boy, and I used to pray to God to change me into a girl. Um, I knew that Jesus came to die for our sins, and I would cry out to him. But it wasn't until that age 17 that I heard a salvation message. Um, there was This was in 1970 in the United States where I grew up, and uh, it was the first time I had heard a salvation message preached, and it was actually part of um, the lives of two friends of mine from high school who had rededicated their lives to the Lord, and they were sharing with me as part of a revival that was going on in their college um, that they had rededicated their lives to the Lord. So when I heard that Jesus could come into my life, save me from my sins, and uh, give me a purpose for life, I jumped at the chance. And that was my born-again experience. And yes, I did have it in my mind that Jesus was going to take away all of these um, attractions that I had that I knew instinctively were not were not of God. Um, but that was not the case. It didn't happen. A biblical perspective of life, culture, and current events. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision. When the Lord directed me to start this ministry, um, he began uh, speaking to my heart about different things, different aspects of the ministry that he wanted me to do. I wanted to be certain that I was doing it his way and not just because I had a nice idea. Um, so he actually gave me the name, Abba's Delight. Abba is the Hebrew word that means daddy. And for many people who are in the gay life and many people even who have walked away from the gay life, um, they've had this feeling, this belief that that God hates them and that they are an abomination and that couldn't be any further from the truth. So the Lord gave me that that name, I believe, to convey his love for them, that I am the delight of my heavenly Father. And then on top of that, beyond just giving me the name, he gave me a scripture verse to go along with it a short time later, and it's Psalm eighteen nineteen b that says he rescued me because he delighted in me. There's... A series of contradictions that happen because in our circumstances, when we talk from a Christian ministry point of view, of course, where we're promoting marriage and we talk about a biblical view of marriage between a man and a woman. So for those who are struggling with secret sexuality issues and homosexuality issues, as you say, there is a certain sense of condemnation that can come to a person simply because you stand for a particular position on marriage. And it creates this challenge for people who are same-sex attracted. And you've just described something so powerful. Even in the name of the ministry, as you've chosen, Abba's Delight, it is therapeutic for someone who is same-sex attracted because just because the church stands for a biblical truth, there is a challenge there because it sounds in condemnation. 
I guess you could say that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just, uh, just fishing for your reactions yeah, on those things. Um, you know, the, the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and that is a wonderful truth. Sometimes we have to work up to those truths to be able to believe them. There's a difference between believing something in the Bible, but believing it for ourselves. I, I know, I knew Jesus loves me. I knew that all along in my mind. But there was a time in my life where I thought, well, Jesus loves everybody but me. Because look at all the things that I've done. Look at how I've treated him. And it took a while for me to get to the place where I knew that Jesus loves Daniel Mingo. And sometimes it takes us a while to get there in our lives. Nevertheless, it is the truth. Daniel, take us to the time you married Fran. I think that was 1983. Yes. And even marrying Fran in a heterosexual relationship, and I'm assuming that you were in a church at this time, and this is part of yes. uh, the conflict that begins to emerge, that uh, you're having these sexual desires, the secret sexuality. Uh, you've got a great, brave face looking good in church on Sunday, and all of these things are going on behind the scenes. I wonder if you can explain and describe what was going on in your own life uh, in those early years in your marriage. Well, when I got born again at 17, that was just a few months before I turned 18. And after I got born again, there was a sense that I always knew that I was supposed to grow up to be a husband and a father. Um, and I had dated through high school. I had dated girls through high school. And so I began at 18 looking for my wife. And uh, unfortunately... Or, or fortunately, it, I, I probably was not ready before that time. Um, nevertheless, I, I, I met Fran at age 30. Um, by that time, I was convinced that, yes, I am supposed to be a husband and a father. Um, along the way, I would tell my pastors that I was dealing with um, unwanted same-sex attractions. But this was in the 70s and early 80s, and pastors were not used to hearing those things from their congregants. And so they they really didn't know how to respond. I remember the very first time I told a pastor, as well-meaning as he was, his response to me was, well, you know, that's a sin, cut it out, which, you know, there's truth in that, but there's not much help in that. Um, and so I got to the point where I stopped telling pastors that it was a problem because they just didn't know how to deal with it. That was where the secret would come and go. So when it came time to marry Fran and my pastors were involved in uh, uh, marrying us and, and um, uh, counseling with us and those kinds of things, um, they were not in on the secret because it was still a secret. A caller rang through and doesn't want to talk on the radio. Uh, they know someone who has struggled with watching pornography. They seem to have it under control and have become accountable to other trusted individuals, but struggles still with temptation. Is there a way to stop temptations altogether? Is that even possible? If not, what advice can you offer to help? I don't believe uh, uh, temptations leaving us completely as human beings on, on this side of heaven. Uh, I don't think that's ever going to happen. We will always be tempted with something. And if it wasn't pornography, it would be something else. And, and I don't believe that God is sitting on the throne 
with clipboard in hand, striking hash marks every time we blow it up. There goes Daniel again. He's not doing that. He's a loving father, and he wants to draw us to himself. He is ready to forgive, and as long as we are ready to confess our sins, John, First uh, John, first chapter, says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we have to repent from those sins, 70 times 7, which is like infinity, you know, mm-hmm. if, we, if, if we have to continue to repent, um, that's not a problem. He wants us. He wants our hearts. He, he wants our heart. I believe that we desire to please him with our life more than he wants to see if we get it right every single time. What I can hear you say is that there is a process in your life, and sometimes we talk about sanctification. It's a process that we're going through from the moment when we have that first encounter with Christ. And there will be a time when we will be sanctified, but this process of sanctification is working. And when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or encounters that you might have along the way, you're talking about something that doesn't immediately take away the temptation, but on the journey that you are on, the temptations become lessened uh, and you really fit more into what God's particular plan for you might be. Is that a fair enough way to talk about process? Yes, I agree with that. <laughs> um, I I have a teaching that I do that's called process is not a four-letter word. Um most of us don't love the process, and we need to learn as believers to love the process. We need to learn how to engage the process and not expect that everything is going to be instantaneous just because we become aware of it or just because we ask. When Jesus said, ask and you shall find, uh, no, ask and, and you sh- it shall be given to you, seek and you yep. shall find, yep. knock and it shall be opened. The Greek word there is ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. Um, for us to have this one-and-done mentality with Christianity is not uh, a biblical perspective of how we should go through life. And so the, the process of um, uh, overcoming sin uh, is just that. It's a, it's a process. Some sins we will overcome easier than others, um, but we will always have sin this side of heaven. A biblical perspective of life, culture, and current events. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision. I was unfaithful to my wife for the first 10 years of our marriage, and I was doing that in secret as well. And under the powerful conviction of, and, and, and I want to say too, there was never a time when I considered walking away from the Lord because this was going on in my life. There was never a time that I wanted to embrace a gay identity. There was never a time when I wanted to be in any kind of relationship with a man. Um, and so I had this internal struggle going on, and I would cry out to the Lord constantly. For me, the acting out became an addiction. And the struggle was that I didn't know how to deal with the addiction. And it was also during a time when a lot of people didn't even believe that you could be addicted to sex. You know, alcohol was fine, and, and, and nicotine was fine, and some other things were fine. But nobody was, nobody was um, accepting um, very few were accepting that that uh, you could be addicted to sex. So when the Holy Spirit broke through to me, as I was crying out to the Lord on the way home from a trip where I was acting out, what the Holy Spirit said was, Daniel, it's time to tell Fran. And I knew that was the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, as much as I wanted to yell, get thee behind me, Satan, I knew it was the Holy Spirit. But instead of rushing home to tell her, the first thing I did was I went and told my pastor. And we talked about it and we prayed about it for a while to make sure that's what God was saying. Came back together a few weeks later, and then we began praying for three specific things. That I would have the right words to tell her, that I would know the right time to tell her, and most importantly, that God would prepare her heart to hear it. And so we prayed, came back together again in another few weeks, and all I could do was trust that God was driving this bus and leading me to do this and trust that he would take care of whatever the responses and the ramifications were going to be. And at this moment, when you share these things with Fran, this is the beginning of what you would say is this transformation process to getting things in order in your life. Uh, from that point on, no doubt that was a rough time, and I'm sure we could spend another hour talking <laughs> just about that. Yes. Uh, but uh, but you, we haven't got time to. Uh, but so far as sharing those things with Fran, uh, working through all of those things that would have become complications to you immediately, uh, Fran's emotions, Fran's uh, own uh, the way that she would have accepted or not accepted, uh, really even the risk that she might have walked away from you. But this is this is the creation of a point when you have actually been strengthened by sharing that with Fran, and now you work walk that journey together. Yes, exactly. So in walking the journey together, you become in some ways synchronized in your life, and so then your marriage becomes the greatest protection against moving off in different directions with secret sexuality. Yes, um, our, our marriage has definitely been strengthened by this. Um, I believe we have a testimony to other couples who have gone through similar things um, because of what God has done in our marriage. Now, we had some struggles when I first shared it with her. We had to make sure that I wasn't um, bringing home any kind of disease. Um, Fran had questions, you know, is he attracted to me at all? Um, are, are there things that I could have done? Uh, are there things that I need to do differently? Um, how can I trust him again? And we had to work through those issues. I needed to rebuild trust with her. And I did whatever I could voluntarily. And I think that's part of the difference in our story with maybe some others is that I volunteered this information to her, albeit 10 years after the marriage started. It was still something I volunteered to her rather than having gotten caught doing something. And that makes a huge difference. I wish we could expand a lot on that because that does make a huge difference when you are the one who up front uh, humbles yourself and admits your own circumstance, your own sin, your own emotional turmoil. So when we have this sharing of a journey together, I imagine that you and Fran have set boundaries for one another. And so you probably travel together and you're probably planning your schedule together. No doubt there's a certain accountability that comes when you are actually walking together. There is an accountability that comes, but Fran is not my primary accountability partner, nor does she want to be. Um, it's important for her that she knows that I do have accountability in place and that I am utilizing the tools that are available to me for accountability. I still go to weekly meetings when I'm at home for my own ongoing 
uh, uh, recovery process. She needs to know that I'm going to those meetings. Early on, um, if I were leaving my day job and on my way home, I would call her and say, I'm leaving the office now. I'm going to stop and get some gas on the way home. I should be home in 20 minutes. Oh, you say petrol, don't you? <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> we know what you're saying. But. Um, so so um, it was um, bringing those things into the relationship that helped rebuild trust and uh, caused uh, a comfortability in her for me to have my primary accountability outside of Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.